It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The Human Zoo, where they don't hide away the sick animals. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The independent republic of Mike Graham. It's time to attention, I'm talking to you! On Talk Radio. Dismiss! Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. And it is an historic day uh, for us here at Talk Radio because we're spending the final day at our original studios where it all started before we moved to the brand spanking new venue at News UK tomorrow, high above uh, London Bridge, overlooking the city of London. It's going to be fabulous. But don't worry, the quality of the shows will not be changing. In fact, they might even be getting a bit better. This morning we're kicking off with a story that has caused all kinds of pain and suffering up and down the country. And today there is a debate in Parliament. Thanks to a petition with 146,000 signatures on it, MPs are going to be asked to make soldiers who have served in Northern Ireland immune from prosecution. It would bring an end to the case against Soldier F, who is currently facing murder charges over the killing of two people on Bloody Sunday in Londonderry in 1972. Tory MP and ex-soldier Johnny Mercer has already withdrawn his support from the government, but now it turns out that the Prime Minister, Theresa May, has been accused of personally blocking legislation giving greater protection to veterans. Surely something has to be done to fix this. We'll speak uh, to retired Army Officer Major General Tim Cross. 0344 499 1000. We want to hear from you as well though because it cannot be right, surely, to prosecute soldiers who have been involved in following orders and doing what they were told as part of their job and as part of their service of this country. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we'll find out how a power cut seems to have rendered Manchester Airport completely unusable for hours and hours on end, still suffering from delays today. Whether the new railway timetable has caused any fewer problems than the last one did and why the post office network is apparently close to complete and utter collapse 0344 499 1000 oh and we'll try and discover exactly what is going on in the countdown to brexit as well because of course brexit is still not happening you're listening to me mike graham right here on talk radio the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio now there are those of you who know all about the petition system in this country if you get enough signatures on a petition a debate has to be had in the house of commons and i think it's a great new development for democracy inside the House of Commons. It's a pity, of course, that the developments in democracy have not, in fact, stretched to almost every aspect of society, including if you vote in a referendum, you actually then have to enact what it is that the people said they wanted to do, particularly when you promised that that's what you would do, uh, but no, so 
far that still hasn't happened. But let's stay away from the B word for the moment. We're not going to get into that quite yet, although it does seem to be as messy today as it was this time last week and the week before that. We're still expecting Theresa May to somehow produce a rabbit out of a hat. And I don't even think she's got a hat, never mind a rabbit. 0344 499 1000. Let's talk to Major General Tim Cross because he uh, is someone whose opinion I value on the subject of people who have served in Northern Ireland, on the subject of what was a very bloody and deadly conflict, regardless of what you might want to call what happened during the Troubles in Northern Ireland. We are now faced with a situation uh, where terrorists were allowed to walk free, thanks to the Good Friday Agreement, uh, without any kind of form of punishment whatsoever, many of them. And now uh, we're going after the soldiers who were supposed to be also given that same kind of immunity. Uh, Major General Tim, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Hi, thank you very much. Good morning to you. No, thank you for joining us. Um, this is going to be a good debate that we're going to have. However, I have to say, I don't hold out a great deal of optimism um, that Theresa May is going to be convinced or that the Attorney General is going to be convinced that uh, dropping prosecutions against people like Soldier F uh, are something they should do. Yeah, I th- well, the devil inevitably is in the detail yeah. in these sort of conversations. I mean, the broad nature of it, I think we're all d'accord with what we'd like to see come out of it. But mm. There was obviously some sort of agreement signed, and to change that, and I don't know what was in that agreement, but to change that, I think the Defence Secretary, Penny Mordaunt, who's put this back on the table very quickly, actually, I have to say, to be fair to her, having taken over as Defence Secretary, I think she's going to find herself constrained by what she can and cannot do, unless Parliament's prepared to pass new legislation and open up the whole thing, which would be, you know, would be difficult, I think. Sure. I mean, but what is the actual parliamentary um, sort of wherewithal, if you like, where they could turn around after the Good Friday Agreement was signed, sealed and delivered, uh, which more or less said, well, we'll seal all this off. We're not going to do yeah. the Truth and Reconciliation Commission route, yeah, yeah. but we're going to make sure that nobody gets prosecuted. And then suddenly they start prosecuting soldiers. I know. It's bizarre, isn't it? And, yeah. they, and I think we've sort of... You end up... By, there's nothing more boring than crusty, crusty old generals saying the world ain't like it used to be. But <laughs> you, do, you do wonder how true, the hell we got ourselves into this situation. Well, that is true. Uh, we do wonder how we got ourselves into this situation. I mean, the Iraq t- situation where we paid lawyers to go knocking on people's doors asking whether they wanted to sue the British government. Yeah. You know, it's just bizarre. And this Northern Ireland thing, what, what irritates me, and I know irritates a lot of other soldiers, is that it, the message is that you're a British soldier serving on an operation deployed by Her Majesty's government, sovereign government, independent, uh, you know, you, you, uh, a d- democratic government, elected by the people, you're sent to go to these places. You're then sort of put on an equal footing with the brutal... Uh, terrorists, IRA, UDA, UVF, all the others of them around the world, who take you know great pleasure in premeditated, pre-planned murder, and you treat soldiers who have to react to this stuff in split seconds as if they're the same, mm. you know, on the same basis. I right. mean, it's just not. It's not. It sounds a bit pathetic, but it's just not fair. It's not right. Well, no, it's not. And, and what is within? Because a lot of people aren't sure about what goes on inside a military uh, unit, or indeed inside a regiment, uh, or yeah. indeed the whole armed forces. I mean, what is the procedure? For example, what would have happened after Bloody Sunday when people were murdered? Uh, and and you know, I call them. I say, well, I say murdered because they were killed yeah. probably yeah. unlawfully. But what goes on inside the army in those circumstances after something like that? Happens. Yeah, well, uh, and, you know, without being, without pushing back too hard on the, on the you know, unlawfully, um, is, we need to be very careful here. The army has to operate within a mass of rules, regulations, conventions, and so mm. on. So there's the Geneva Convention. Yeah. There's the laws of armed conflict under the humanitarian law as well. There are the rules of engagement for each individual operation. A soldier, you know, I served in Northern Ireland in the 70s in my pocket. 
and every soldier's pocket was a was a card which told them how they had to approach these things, when right. they could open fire, when they couldn't open fire, right. and so on. And of course, soldiers are making split-second decisions under the ch- under the chain of command. It's the, it's the chain of command that deploys them on the streets right. in Northern Ireland. Um, and when something like this happens, then the chain of command does investigate it. Now, again, one of the problems today is that we've completely, we collectively, have completely lost trust in organisations. Yeah. We've lost trust in, in, you know, in government, but also in, in all sorts of other areas, the church, the military, and so on. And so internally, we just don't believe collectively that internal investigations are good enough. But mm. the army would have inve- did carry out investigations into all of these issues. Now, you know, again, going back to one of the points you made in, in, in the introduction, we call these the troubles, but people forget in the early 1970s, 300 members of the security forces were dying every year. Yeah. This was, you know, far more than died in Iraq and Afghanistan. We were taking heavy casualties, and it was constant, day after day, shootings, bombings. I mean, I was a bomb disposal operator in Northern Ireland. You know, the teams were out every day dealing with terrorist uh, devices and mm. so on. So, you know, this was one incident. Of course, it's, it's, it's terribly important for all sorts of reasons. But, you know, we tend to forget Warren Point. Nineteen British soldiers were killed at Warren Point. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and many other Omar bombings and so on. So when we talk well, about that's the, not the even to mention, and that's not even to mention what happened on the mainland. I mean, I grew up in the 70s no, in, in London. I wasn't very far away from the cancer surgeon's uh, sure. explosion, which went off in Holland Park, because I used sure. to go to school down the road, you know, yeah. and it was a daily uh, thing that you thought about. My mother barely uh, missed the uh, the Harrods bomb. You know, I remember the, the Hyde Park yeah. bombing when they blew up all the horses. Yeah. I mean, horrendous yeah. stuff, yeah. which people yeah. don't recognise. No, and the Birmingham bombings yeah. and others too. No, you're quite right. So so these investigations, yes, they did take part. Now, if I'm honest, you know, I keep, as I keep saying in these sort of conversations, the British Army is a deeply flawed organisation because it's made up of people like me. We're flawed human beings. We get it wrong. We make mistakes. And, uh, and that's inevitable. Uh, but so investigating, finding out the truth of what went on, and the decision then to decide that a soldier has acted illegally... Mm. Is, is not an easy decision to make when you're dealing with these sorts of situations. Yeah. But we do. And, and be under no illusion, and I want everybody listening to be under no illusion, if soldiers Ill- act illegally, then they need to be uh, dealt with. They need to go through the, the, the system and, be, and if necessary, be, be punished for it. Um, but very rarely does that happen. I mean, you know, it's, it's not as though soldiers are running riot on the streets. So this, so I don't think this court, this case, will ever come to court. Actually, and I think really? to, to prove to prove that this guy actually committed murder forty odd years ago. I mean, I don't know about you, but I can't remember the niceties of what no. I got to you know two or three years ago. Well, it's very difficult, and there isn't the kind of evidence that we would have nowadays, like CCTV no. footage or or even you know somebody's camera phone footage. But we right. do hear of stories which may or may not be true of soldiers shooting people in the back. Now I don't know if well, that, that happened. Is, no, no. Well, I'm sure I'm sure there are times when it happens. Now. It's easy to sort of t- to immediately reach a conclusion on yeah. that, but there may be all, there may be all sorts of circumstances behind that. I'm not rushing to defend every case, everything that happened in Northern Ireland. Yeah. We got things wrong, and we needed to learn from it. And I think overall, we did learn from it. The British Army, you know, is an army that genuinely is determined to do the best it can to mm. be a force for good in the world. But in terms of you know the Bloody Sunday Inquiry, for example, 
If you compare what happened to this young journalist who was killed in Londonderry, we mustn't lose sight of the fact that the IRA and others were quite happy to shelter behind children, behind civilians, shoot from behind walls where there are lots of other civilians around and so forth, which is exactly what happened in Derry with this young journalist that was killed. So for a soldier to try to differentiate between, you know, genuine uh, danger and and so on is not easy. Mm. I I think we we did make mistakes in the early days in Northern Ireland. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But, um, you know, picking up again the whole thing about do you then put that soldier on the same pedestal as a pre-planned, you know, brutal murder of of, uh, civilians, bombing, shootings and so forth and and say, say we're going to treat you exactly the same way as... Well, guess what, though? They're not even being treated exactly the same way. They're actually being treated worse because the the people on the unlawful side of the terror uh, campaign uh, and some of the the terrorists that were working and operating, they're they're walking away scot-free. There's nobody nobody prosecuting them. And this can only, in my view... I mean, I watched an amazing documentary, I think it was on BBC4 relatively recently, about uh, the soldiers in Northern Ireland. And this one guy told a story of how he was walking down... I'm sure this will be familiar to you, walking down a street... um, uh, in in formation as they used to do, uh, yeah, had his yeah. gun at the ready. Saw a gun point coming out of a um, um, coming out of a window on the second floor of a of a sort of terraced house. Yeah. Decided to get into position to fire. Then waited and saw, luckily, that it was a child and a child yeah. holding a, a toy gun. And those yeah. kind of you can't imagine what that. Well, you can, but I can't imagine yeah, yeah. what kind of stress that creates for somebody. It, it creates enormous stress, which is why we've got. You know, all the issues in terms of PTSD and so forth that yeah. flows from it. We're not, you know, soldiers clearly are not immune from that. It was. It was to, to try and, ex- unless you've lived through it, it's very difficult because it's day after day. Yeah. I mean, as a bomb disposal operator, you know, dealing with fear, mostly actually not while you're out on the job, but in between waiting yeah. to be called out. So if you've been out on a tough patrol, there's been shootings and bombings and so forth for the young soldiers, they're then, you know, back in a secure base thinking about. I'm going to do this again tomorrow yeah. and the next day and the next day. Um, and it, it is very wearing. Mm. And as I said earlier, uh, you know, recognizing the reality of having to make very quick decisions. The chain of command is important in this. The young officers, the warrant officers, the company commanders and COs and so on were very conscious of this. And when you look back at the number, you know, we're talking about the height of the troubles in, in early 1970s. We had 28,000 soldiers deployed in Northern yeah. Ireland. Hundreds of thousands of British soldiers served in Northern Ireland over the 30 years mm. of the troubles. And, you know, in the vast majority of cases, they did a brilliant job. Yeah. Um, and yes, did we get it wrong occasionally? We did. Do we need to understand the reality of that and deal with it? Yes, we do. But it's happening that and what you expect from these young guys that I think this debate is all about. And, yes. and I think the vast majority of people would just say, we've lost the plot here. Mm. And also, uh, and politically, about it. Uh, politically, there appears to be nothing but misery that will come from this. There doesn't yeah, seem to be any advantage to anyone, really, uh, for raking all this over again, does it? No, uh, although one has to acknowledge, you mentioned the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. I mean, I think, you know, there's an argument to say we could have done this differently in the past. And, uh, you know, I don't want to sound silly about it, but the mm. course... People who lost loved ones in Northern Ireland um, who were not terrorists. You know, one's got to remember that at the height of the troubles, there were probably never more than a few hundred hard, brutal terrorists Mm. who were doing the killings and the bombings. Around them were quite a lot of people who were very sympathetic to the cause and were prepared to hide weapons and support them and so on. But the majority, the vast majority of people in Northern Ireland were just good people trying Mm. to live their lives. Many of them were sympathetic to the cause, it has to be said, and that cause has not gone away. But a lot of people lost, you know, brothers, sisters, husbands, wives, etc., etc., um, and, in, and in many cases will feel very bitter about mm. it. And we have to understand the reality of that. 
But then the parents of the soldiers who were killed feel pretty bitter too in many yeah. cases. Well, we saw um, the reaction as well of the people in Londonderry, or Derry as it's now called, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, to the shooting of the journalist you mentioned earlier. Yeah. You know, going yeah, up yeah. very bravely, in my view, to uh, the offices of these kind of dissident IRA groups and planting yeah. their hands painted red yeah. on yeah. the building saying, we don't want you here. I mean, that yeah, takes absolutely. some guts in Northern Ireland. It does. It does. It absolutely takes some guts. And we need to acknowledge the reality of that and support those guys, mm. which is why in the way we deal with all of this, we have to be, you know, we have to be sympathetic and understanding and as balanced as we can be. Sweeping generalizations yeah. are never easy and are never right, actually, in these conversations. Yeah. But you do come back to, OK, let's just get back to the reality of this. Is it right? But a young, I don't know how old he was at the time, 19-year-old Lance Corporal, Corporal, is the only person being held to account over Bloody Sunday. I mean, it just, it just doesn't feel no, right. No, it really doesn't. Major General Tim Cross, thank you very much indeed for your time. Uh, retired Army officer, speaking an awful lot of sense. Of course there were mistakes made. Of course government policy could be questioned. And of course individual soldiers may have done things which they were asked to do, ordered to do, or which they did off their own bat, purely and simply because of the stress uh, and the danger they were in at the time. You can't go around prosecuting them. And surely, to heavens, when this debate takes place in Parliament later on today, we should be able to vote with our feet and tell MPs this is what we want. We do not want these um, individual soldiers prosecuted. They should be given immunity, just like the terrorists have been able to walk free from any prison that they were in thanks to the Good Friday Agreement. Surely, to heavens, that is the sensible way forward. 0344 499 1000 will take your calls next on Talk Radio. A mid-morning dance with the devil. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Three four 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 nine nine one thousand is the number. You know what to do. You want to get onto this show and talk common sense. That's what we do. We talk an awful lot of common sense on this radio station and on this show in particular. Uh, you can text us on eight seven triple two. You can tweet us at Talk Radio. We've got loads of things to talk about this morning. We kicked off first of all uh, with Soldier F and the uh, debate that's happening in Parliament today, uh, at which MPs are going to suggest that we should really be offering complete and utter immunity to soldiers that served in Northern Ireland. We should not be prosecuting them for murder. You know, that should all be dead and buried and forgotten about. Never forgotten about to the point where people don't discuss it, but forgotten about in terms of punishing individuals who did their job fighting for their country in incredibly difficult circumstances against an incredibly difficult enemy. And all of the enemies, of course, have been given absolute and utter immunity and have walked free from any sentence that they may have been given thanks to the Good Friday Agreement. So we'll take more of your calls on that throughout the show. 0344 499 1000. Coming up, though, uh, let's talk about the railways because this morning uh, we've got yet another train timetable in place. I uh, don't know whether it's going to be uh, any less effective than the last one, but you might remember this time last year they brought in a new timetable and it was complete and utter disaster. Uh, so let's talk to Bruce Williamson this morning and find out whether things are any better. Bruce, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Yeah, I, I, I think actually, mm. um, well, just listening to the news headlines, we haven't heard anything about train chaos this morning, have we? No. So I think we can conclude that actually uh, the rail industry have learnt the lessons from the fiasco of last year mm. and, uh, and that the, the new timetable has been uh, 
slipped in relatively smoothly. Which now, at last, it's, it's nice to have a bit of good news, isn't well, it? Well, it is nice to have a bit of good news, but of course it's tempered as well by some bad news because there's always a bit of good and bad going on together. And while I'm very grateful and happy that it appears that we may have learned from our uh, problems of last year, uh, another figure has come out in which it says that in 2018, significantly delayed trains have accounted for around 4 million lost hours to train users. Now, it's hard to quantify that in my brain. So I'm going to ask you, I presume this means, and this refers to people being delayed getting to work, being delayed getting to school, being delayed just getting to general, you know, life uh, as it goes on. Yeah, all, all of those things, yeah. I mean, uh, I think the, the, the benchmark is a, a significant delay is more than 29 minutes. And obviously a cancellation is pretty easy to define if the train doesn't turn up at all. Um, it's been cancelled. And, yeah, last year was, was a, a really bad year. There's no getting away from that. And, and the, the May timetable chaos that we all know about so well um, not only contributed to the, the, the sort of problems in itself, but there were huge knock-on effects. You may recall it took, it took months to sort out those problems. Uh, so that that largely explains it, but you know, there's no excuse. It, it, it wasn't a great year for the railways last year. It was not. And I mean, the other thing we're hearing this morning, and I'm sorry to to have a sort of slightly scattergun approach to the oh. railway news today, uh, but we're seeing a lot of MPs who have apparently lost uh, all concern for their senses and are urging the government not to give up on HS2, saying that it's going to be a fantastic thing, it's going to be brilliant, even though it's massively over budget and is not really required. Um, they're saying, forget about all these other MPs who say that we should be concentrating more on local railway lines. Let's push on with HS2, otherwise it will be a disaster for Britain. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because in these uncertain times, you know, it, it, it ties into the politics that we all know so much about. And, and who is going to be the next Tory leader? Uh, Boris Johnson, who is the front-runner, but the front-runner probably usually doesn't end up getting the job. Um, he's stated in the past that he wants to scrap HS2. And there's yeah. quite a lot of grassroots Tory activists who think that it isn't uh, but it's not necessarily where we should be spending the monies, I think, is their argument. Yeah, um, you know, the, the, once the price goes up, the, obviously what you call the, the benefit-to-cost ratio goes down and yeah. it becomes harder to justify. I mean, I, I as, as a rail campaigner, don't want to present this in a sort of either-or thing. You know, we need the continued investment in the existing network, but we also need that extra capacity because we have a growing railway. Yeah. And, and there's no sort of do-nothing option. If you scrap HS2, you've got to come up with something else. But sadly, politicians have a very sort of short-term time frame, and, and rail projects, you have to think of them in, in the very, very long term. Mm. Well, you do. But, of course, one of the things we realised from last year's debacle over in, the, in parts of the north, particularly, was that, you know, there are very few really, really good rail services that go kind of east-west around the north of England. And a lot of people are saying that's really where money should be spent because that's where local commuting is much more important than, say, for example, improving a rail line, which is a little bit quicker than the one that's already there, uh, which is quite well used anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a very, very strong case for, you know, better connectivity across the north because then you... You, you get the benefits of tying these major cities together and the yeah. north as a whole then becomes a, a sort of massive economic powerhouse. So, yeah, that investment definitely needs, needs to happen. I mean, HS2 isn't about shaving a few minutes off the journey to Birmingham. It's all about capacity, you know, the fact that our existing network is clogged. So you've got to build a new line. And if you're building a new line, well, you might as well make it high speed because that's relatively easy to do. Just to Except aren't we now hearing that they can't run it too high speed because that'll cost too much money? 
Well, yeah. I mean, we, what we need is we need high speed. We don't need super high speed. Right. Um, there's, there's no point going more than about 200 miles an hour because the, you know, then you have to make super straight to super level track, and the the energy costs go through the roof. Mm. Then, so you know, 200 miles, miles an hour is is a, is a sensible high speed for for railways. It gives us all the benefits without too many of the costs. Mm. And then you've got the old Oak Common problem as well, haven't you? Where it's now coming into a part of West London, which is not really very close to central London. So um, when you say you can get down there quicker, that's all very well, but then you're not actually anywhere you want to be. You still well, don't yeah, have to go, you still don't have to travel east into London. Yeah, that's true. I mean, obviously we, we will have Crossrail up and running by then. And you reckon? Sort of... Oh yeah, definitely. You sound yeah, yeah. very confident. Oh, I am. Yeah, I mean, you know, that, that's you know, two years, two years away. You know, uh, uh, HS2 is ten, twenty years away. You know, hmm. so um, there's plenty of time to sort. Yeah, out but that's like that. saying you can take the high speed train up from, uh, um, you know, from Europe, the uh, the the Channel Tunnel train, and then come yeah. all the way up into Stratford, and then you're in great shape because then you can get another train. I mean, it all takes time, doesn't it? That's the it point. does. Yeah, people don't like changing trains, so through services are important. Yeah, yeah. and ideally, you want to you want to go into central London and and sort of connect to a, a great hub at probably King's Cross and Pancras that, yeah. that, and, and in Euston that, that, that sort of serves everyone. Uh, but yeah, this is one of the cost-saving suggestions that's been put through, that we just uh, take HS2 up to Old Oak Common and, and forget that very expensive tunnelling mm. through central London to get to, to Euston. Right. So when are you being told that Crossrail will actually be up and running? I think you and I had this conversation before when you said, well, some of it is. So yeah, I'm, well, not, I mean, the I'm not going to let you get away with just renaming bits of it. So I'm talking about when is it actually going to be possible to get a train from Old Oak Common to Stratford without yeah, I, having I think, without having think, to change? I think the, the current thinking is about two years. You know, let's, let's be pessimistic. Let's say three years max. Three. Know? Yeah, but um, you know, I I, I think it, but it, it wasn't it meant to be finished like last year. Yes, it was. Yeah, right. that, it, it's. <laughs> again, <laughs> <laughs> like I mean, sort of, uh, you, but the uh, thing is, right? Negative stories, aren't you? you well, know. no, I'm not. I'm just asking you to be as pessimistic as possible, and okay, you're you're doing that. Possible, yeah, and for, years, so yeah. for it to be four years late <laughs> and over budget, it's not something to be proud of, surely? No, it's not. No, there, there has been. Oh, yeah, definite weaknesses in the project management of Crossrail. Yes. which, uh, you know, the the I, I think. Um, Transport for London have to take some of the rap for that, right. but you know, pretty much always the, you know, the, the the buck stops at the very top, really. It does. Well, I mean, you might make a case that you'll be uh, riding on a train that's crossrail proficient before we leave the European Union. Uh, stranger things have happened. Yes, I mean, you know, as I said earlier on in the interview, we we live in politically uncertain times. And True. And no one can predict anything, really. Right. So, yeah, you, you might be right there. But at least let's finish on the good news that the so-called new train timetable appears to have, uh, have worked. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I just ha- there's been one or two problems in Scotland. But, I mean, yes, uh, compared to last year, much, 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 much better. And, and you know, um, there, there are no headlines of chaos. No, that's, so that's good. good thing. So do you think they've actually just learned to... Because the problems we had last year were not enough drivers, not enough drivers that knew where they were going, yeah. not enough new trains that were set up in the right places on the day yeah. that the, the timetable changed. So they fixed all that, you think? Yeah, I think there's two factors. Firstly, they certainly have learned the lessons you know, and they've planned it a lot better. And secondly, they've bitten off a lot less this time. So they, they had a massive change.
changed last year in the timetables. Mm. Loads of new services and loads of changes. Whereas this year, a little bit more modest changes. So the, the smaller changes are sort of easier to manage. Right, OK. Well, listen, Bruce, delightful to talk to you as ever. Thank you very much indeed. Bruce Williamson there from Rail Futures uh, talking about some good things about the railways and some bad things. But certainly, I would say, HS2 and Crossrail, the two big sort of uh, projects, the big uh, structural re re um, administrated projects are not going well at all because under plans for HS2 uh, it's going to be a 330 mile line connecting London to Birmingham, Leeds and Manchester. Stage one of the line which is capable of carrying trains at up to 225 miles an hour is due to open between London and Birmingham in 2026. That, ladies and gentlemen, is seven years away. Seven years to build a railway line. I mean, you know, if this was in China, they'd have done it by last week after starting it the week before. £56 billion is the budget. They're not going to stick to that. It's going to be a lot more money than that, possibly twice as much. I mean, what is going on? Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Human Zoo, where they don't hide away the sick animals. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You know what to do. 0344-499-1000. Coming up, of course, uh, later on at 1 o'clock, it's Matthew Wright and Kevin O'Sullivan. They'll take you all the way through until 4 o'clock. This is our last day, by the way. I think I may have mentioned this. In the old studios where Talk Radio was born, uh, where Talk Radio has shared with Talk Sport for many a year. Uh, We're moving tomorrow 
in the morning to News UK, uh, just up the road, but it's going to be a lot nearer, a lot shinier, uh, a lot more expensive, uh, and a lot, more, a lot more kind of modern, I suppose you might say. Uh, but it should be hopefully just as good. Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand. We're going to talk now, though, uh, to Catherine Powell, festival organizer at Lytham Club Day, because unbelievably, right, unbelievably, they've done it again. The jobsworths of this country have said you can't put any bunting up because it might be a health and safety issue. I mean, for heaven's sake, Catherine, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Now, I'm sorry to have to have you on the show because clearly you'll be very frustrated at this uh, ridiculous decision that's been made. When did they let you know and why suddenly now can they not let you have bunting when they've let you have it before? So, um... Lytham Club Day is the annual parade in in Lytham, um, just down the road from Blackpool. Right. And all the little villages around here, they all have these um, fate days every year. And the bunting goes from the next village, you know, it goes up for the for the parade, comes down and goes to the goes to the next village. So it's not just Lytham; it's all these lovely little villages mm. in in Lancashire. Um, apparently. We shouldn't have been doing it for years and years, but it's only just come to light because the company who normally puts it up for the local authority went out of business. So when the local authority tried to find another company, the county council turned around and said to the local authority, oh, but you shouldn't be putting it up anyway. And you shouldn't have been putting it up, um, you know, for the last but 40 it's been, odd years. Well, but it's, it's never mind the last 40 odd years. It's been up for 124 years, according to my information, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. It has. And yeah. we're, what we're saying is, you know, show us the proof where um, the Buntings brought the, yeah. the lamppost down. You right. know, obviously, if it's going to be pulling lampposts down, you know, because Bunting is obviously clearly very dangerous. Very heavy, it? yeah. And it can pull all these lampposts down. So we're saying show us the proof where these lampposts, you know, it's almost like the, the rule where if you've had a fence around a plot of land for so many years, then, then you can have that mm. land. So we've been putting this bunting up for years and years without any incident that we are aware of in Lancashire, although somebody said today that one lamppost was pulled down in Leyland, but I don't actually believe it was the bunting that pulled it down. No, it probably that couldn't possibly be the case. Well, I'll tell you what, if it's of any help, and it may not be, um, I, I was down in Sussex at the weekend in a little town called Battle. I drove through it one way to go, one way through it, but I kind of drove back about an hour later. They'd put a load of bunting up. I don't know whether there's a, uh, a, a, a sort of a, a, a festival going on there, but you know, clearly there are other parts of the country where bunting is fine. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's been fine here. This is the problem. It's been fine here. And the thing about the bunting is, it, to, you know, to some people they say, well, what's the fuss all about? It's just a little triangle of material. But everybody gets excited because the bunting goes up very early in the early hours of the morning on the Tuesday before everybody's club day. And all the kids and all the adults get really excited because you know it's your club day on Saturday because the bunting's gone up. Mm. Um, it stays up till for a week and then it comes back down again. So, you know, we think it's absolutely ridiculous. And the, the ironic thing is... If we if this company hadn't have gone out of business and we hadn't sought another company, we'd have just put it up and nobody has been any of the wiser because apparently we've been putting it up illegally for years and years. So really, it was it? a shame because we would have just put it up anyway. And and the feeling is, well, we'll just have a you know a vigilante group that goes out in the early hours of the morning <laughs> and, and we'll get the bunting well, up anyway. Well, exactly and right. We've had, had eight year old women offering to come up in the in the thing and, and do that, but you know obviously we don't because if we do that this will be the year then something happens and you know we've had it kind of thing so so we just want Lancashire County Council to to 
you know, to look at it again and, and, and come up with a solution. Well, really, they ought to, because at the end of the day, the other thing is, is that these people work for us. It's not like, you know, we work for them. We pay their wages. We pay council tax. We pay towards the running of their organisation, not the other way around. Tell us a exactly. bit about the festival itself. What happens at the Lytham Club Day Festival? So it's the largest of its kind in the northwest, and we have a parade which lasts. It goes for about three miles around the town, and then we move up to Lytham Hall, which is a big stately home, and we have um, the crowning ceremony of the Rose Queen, and we have an afternoon entertainment and evening entertainment, and it's just a lovely family day. But we've been we've been you know dogged by um, health and safety for the last few years. You know we, we've had to bring mm. in. Um, barrier all the roads off and 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 the risk assess everything every step of the way in the last 10 years club day could have gone under at any any one point because right. of all these extra regulations and you know which yeah you can you can understand that so we have now have marshals on every road and the traffic management's great but now to pick on the bunting and to say you know it's just another another hurdle that we've got to to get over and we're all volunteers you know yeah right um, and we're doing this in our spare time, and then you get told by the county council that you can't have bunting any year any longer. So, but we're not just taking it; we're fighting it all the way. How about taking a load of bunting and wrapping it around the council building, something like that? <laughs> I mean, I'm not yeah. trying to encourage civil disobedience, but you know, something harmless that you could do to draw attention to it. Because I presume if you went all the way back through 124 years, I don't imagine you could find one individual who was harmed by a piece of bunting falling down. Exactly, exactly. I mean, 2012, that um, we had the Olympic torch running through Lytham on Club mm. Day. And the night before, there was horrendous storms, um, really unusual for that time of year. Right. And it shredded all the buntings. It, it just snapped. It didn't pull. And that was the, the worst weather we've had on Club Day, yeah. you know, or leading up to Club Day. And it just it just shredded it. Yeah, so we right. just tied it around the lamppost. Nobody's, you know been decapitated by a piece of bunting <laughs> going across the street so um but it's the kind of thing you say about civil disobedience it's the kind of thing that really gets people yes. backed up and 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 they really want to to stand and do something about it so yeah we will do something mm. about it and what about the council themselves have they said that they will allow you to make some kind of representation of appeal uh, of the decision no we're looking at that at the moment so our local council filed council they're very supportive, yeah. but it's the county council that have overruled it. So we're, we're looking. Um, uh, we've had the the county councillor talking this morning, who's responsible for it. Um, but that was a bit of a white elephant. What he said, really, we we need somebody with a bit of authority. Even though he is the councillor, we need to go kind of above that to the offices and 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 get them out here and and tell us what they can do. Yes, quite right too. Well, listen, good luck with it, Catherine, and do let us know. We'll try and keep in touch. And if you manage to get it through, it'll be another great victory for the great people of filed and for this country as well. Catherine Powell, festival organizer at Lytham Club Day, lovely part of the world, Lytham St Anne's. It really is very very nice and. People People go there, of course, when the Open is played there. But apart from that, it's a pretty cool place to be. But the council banning bunting, really? They've got nothing better to do, these people. A mid-morning dance with the devil. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. For what it's worth, it was worth all the while. It's something unpredictable. But in the end is right. I hope you had the time of your life. 
This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You know what to do. 0344 499 1000. Talking about statistics, right? And now I know that I shouldn't in any way uh, ever big up another show on another station, but there's a great show called More or Less, uh, which is on Radio 4, which talks about the figures behind the statistics. And whenever they do that, you can sh- be sure that they're just being made up. There was stuff we did last week, for example, about the um, uh, the number of people in organised crime gangs in this country and how many people were being killed by organised crime. It turns out, right, that none of those figures were in fact inaccurate in any way. They were just making them up as they went along. They were taking the fact that there were so many people registered on what they regarded as illegal child pornography sites, for example, and assumed they were all in organised crime. Well, they're not, clearly, are they? Anyway, that's a bugbear of mine. I shall get on to it another time. Let's go first of all, though, now uh, back to the phones and talk to Valerie, uh, who's in Cheshire. Hello, Valerie. Hello, Valerie. Valerie's not there. Let's talk to Paul in Manchester. Hi, Paul. Hello. Good oh, afternoon, sir. Thanks good good afternoon. Yeah, what, what would you like to say, Paul? I'd like to talk about um, soldier F, so-called soldier F. Yeah. The first in the Paris year regiment. Sure. Um, speaking as a veteran, um, for two years, the war-torn province of Northern Ireland mm. back in the early 70s. Right. Um we were given training. We went to a place in uh, Reading, Kent, where they had a mock-up village there to look like some backstreet area of Belfast. Okay. The training was the training was very very good as best they could. Yeah. However, the rules of engagement um, were very ambiguous. Um, we were on the war footing, uh, soldiers. We right. were sent there originally to keep the peace, to keep the two sides apart. Right. But. Um, Unfortunately, uh, it ended up where soldiers were being killed every other week. Uh, and, you know, uh, unfortunately, there, there was Bloody Sunday, 30th yeah. of January 1972, 1st Battalion, Paris. Right. Um, but I, I don't blame the Paris Regiment. You're dealing with warriors. The uh, 2nd Battalion, they took the program, so you had the 3rd, but... You're dealing with um, warriors. They were sent there um, to be police officers, right. to police the problems, and also back up the what was the RUC. But they were they were soldiers were being killed every other week, yeah. and um, because, because of this war fussing. I mean, I don't know how, how old you are. I'm coming up to uh, sixty uh, sixty five now. Yeah, I'm a bit younger um, than that, but I remember it all because I you know I saw it every night on the TV news. You know. Yes. Well, as I say, um, we were on a war footing. Um, we were looking out for one another. And if I can use the expression, in the heat of battle, yeah. mistakes can be made. Sure. And with, with, uh, with a high-velocity rifle, the self-loading rifle, once you fire a, a, an aim target, there's no going back. Mm. The, the bullet's gone. It's travelling at 600 metres a second, and within a split second, it's hit the target. Yeah. Now, I've no, I've no doubt that um, people were innocent. However, there was guns firing all over the shore, uh, and it's the heat of battle. There was fear, mm. uh, anticipation. And did you, did you feel, and, Paul, that, that the rules of engagement kind of changed depending on what day it was and what was going on? Well, it's a good question, Mike, because after Bloody Sunday, if I can go back to 1974, yeah. 
along came the British Army. Um, they, they were politically hamstrung, as they are in any in any war. Mm. And along came the blue and yellow cards, the international law rules of engagement for right. opening fire. Right. Um, the blue the blue cards were for um, shooting petrol bombs, and the yellow cards were opening fire on people who were shooting at you or any other innocent person okay. or any one of your comrades. And it was so ambiguous. If I can take take you to the um, the blue card, yeah. uh, uh, shooting at petrol bombers, uh, you had to give three distinct clear warnings. Now, somebody throwing a petrol bomb, um, they wore balaclavas, more often than not, they wore a boiler-type suit, they all looked like one mm. another. Right. So you've issued a warning. That's warning one. So you, you start it off, you've issued warning one, Person's ducked behind Rossville Flats as he was at the time, and all or on top of the flats. All of a sudden, they ducked back again. Warning two, but warning two could have been issued to somebody who looked like warning one. Sure. And um, and then all of a sudden, warning three, you, you've opened fire. You might have issued only one warning yeah. to the person you've killed. But, but isn't but isn't that partly their fault as well, Paul? My problem here is that you're trying to do a very difficult job. Now, if there isn't anyone with a petrol bomb, you're not being asked to make that decision. But they're coming into your line of fire deliberately. Yes, that, that is another very good question. Um, however, the rules of engagement, because the British Army did everything right in accordance with international law, mm. we're talking about three distinct warnings, right. the ambiguity of it all was, was unbelievable. Sure. I mean, if you can imagine in the heat of battle, because that's what it was, battle, it was warfare, guerrilla warfare. Mm. If you can imagine, you, you, you've literally got a split second yeah. what you're going to do, a split second, because their guns, they had the armour light rifle at the time, which was also... Yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, if you make the wrong decision, Paul, and you don't shoot, then you could be shot, and that's the problem. But listen, it's a great call. Thank you so much for explaining. You explained it really well, um, what it must have been like to be in that situation with all of those rules of engagement and all of that ambiguity. Let's talk to Valerie. I think we've got her back uh, in Cheshire. Valerie, very good afternoon to you. Oh, hi, Mike. Hi, Valerie. What would you like to tell us? Your brother was in the Marines. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, th this is what I remember. Uh, this is like the family of a soldier. Right. He was in the Royal Marine Commando Parachute Regiment. Right. And... They knew, they were told that regiment, because I remember all this, um, they were told maybe six or eight months before they went to Northern Ireland that they were going to Northern Ireland. Right. And the, there was him, and there was about three or four others who had, a, they weren't conscientious objectors, but they had a conscience. Right. They were going on active service in full battle dress, against their own people. That's what they thought. Yeah. What happens if we, sh you know, how can you shoot your own people? Mm. And they went to their commanding officers, there was a number of them, and they asked, please, we would like not to be deployed to Northern Ireland, send us anywhere else, right. but not on British soil. And they were told no. Right. They had to go. What happened was, with some of them, including my brother, there was a lad from London, another one from Kent, they had to... They said they weren't going, and the only way they could not go was to, in those days, buy themselves out of the army. And they had to buy themselves really? out. Really? Yeah, and because, was this because they were of Irish heritage or because their parents were Irish? What? 
Uh, I think there was one lad who uh, who had like grandparents who were Irish, but okay. it, that wasn't the. It was something to do with it, but you know, Northern Ireland is well. It never called it United Kingdom. It was Great Britain. Yeah. They were. It was British soil. Yeah. They're on. They're against their own people as right. they saw it. Sure. How can they do that in full battle dress on active service? Mm. So anyway, so that was that one. So you know, there was a. a those soldiers, before they even set foot on Irish show, there were soldiers there, very, very aware that these are our people. Yeah. This is British soil. You know what I mean? That's before they even set foot there. Sure. Then the other thing is, Michael, and I won't say, if soldiers are not protected on British soil, but they are elsewhere, surely there should be a balance. Surely that soldier, therefore, then, should be able to make a personal decision not to take orders. To shoot. Well, I don't Surely think you'd have some balance somewhere. Well, I don't know, Valerie, because the trouble is, you can't make it too democratic in the armed forces because it's not about democracy. It's about follow. It is in the end about following orders. You have to hope that the people giving the orders are doing it in in a, in a way which is right and are doing it with responsibility uh, and with dignity and all the rest of it. And they're not yeah. ordering people to do things that they shouldn't do. Yeah. But I don't think you can get too many people with um, uniforms on making up their own minds whether they decide to do it or not. Well, then there has to be some law then, doesn't there? Mm. They either are protected yes. or they're not. No, listen, I've been a great supporter of, of, of you know rights for soldiers because, like I said, the Red Caps incident in Iraq was disgraceful where these guys were cornered inside a building with yeah. no ammunition, with no weapons, and they were butchered mm. by the people who wanted to kill them. And that was the army's fault for not equipping them properly. Mm-hmm, that's you know? right. And that that's was right. a shocking state of affairs. Yeah. But listen, Valerie, very good call. Thank you once again. Some amazing calls today. Let's talk to Dion, uh, who's in Langley. Hi, Dion. Yeah, all right, mate. Yeah. How you doing? Yeah. yeah. I didn't watch Eurovision. I watched the boxing instead. Quite right too. <laughs> well, it's a lot, a lot less, uh, lot, lot less time-consuming if you watch the boxing. Yeah, I know. And, and England won. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. What do you want to tell us? No, listen, that lady then, she's on about conscientious objectors. Yeah. Which doesn't work, really. You join up, that's that's your job, regardless yes. where you are. I think so. You know, people are shooting at you, you've got to shoot back. I mean, I was, I've had many conversations on, on, on the radio about this, and if you join the Army or you join the Navy or you join the Air Force, you can't suddenly turn around and go, oh, I didn't think I was going to be sent into a battle zone. Well, yeah, you are, yeah, that's your job. Exactly. This is what I was getting to, the country, when I phoned up earlier this yeah. morning. We're just getting a really namby-pamby snowflake state. The police have got their hands tied. Yeah. The military got their hands tied. Yeah. And, and councillors, you know, if you're renting a council house, it's, you can run it as a crack house and they'll, they'll tell you off. They don't <laughs> kick you out. It's just... You can't, put any, you can't put any bunting up, though, for the crack house, can you? Well, I don't know, but it is, you know, and we have this thing, uh, community service. You know, instead of going to prison, you do community service. I look at the local court reports in the local paper, and there's people going there for not doing it, and all they do is get told off. Yeah. Well, why don't they just put them in prison where they should have been in the first well, place? Well, I mean, it's a very good question, Dion. I can't answer it, but I would imagine it's because there isn't any room in the prison because there are too many other people in there. But anyway, uh, Kenneth Noy's coming out soon, so everything's going to be fine and dandy. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app.
If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.